Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who was charged with the reckless homicide of Joseph Rosenbaum, the intentional homicide of Anthony Huber, and the attempted intentional homicide of Gage Grosskreutz. As Rittenhouse was the undisputed shooter of all three men, his legal team argued that the shootings were in self-defense. At the end of each week, I am joined by a guest to help us distill and further examine what we heard in trial that previous week. Again this week, my guest is Abby Smith, who serves as professor of law and director of the Criminal Defense and Prisoner Advocacy Clinic at Georgetown University. Together we'll explore a number of the issues that were raised by the courtroom events that we covered this past week, including the dismissal of a juror for telling a racist joke and the direct examination by prosecutor Thomas Binger of the man who was following immediately behind Joseph Rosenbaum as Kyle Rittenhouse shot him. That's all coming up right after the break. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah. That plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. And now, my conversation with Georgetown law professor and criminal defense attorney, Abby Smith. Abby Smith, thank you again for joining us. Hi, glad to be here. We started this week with juror number seven, who told a, well, frankly, racist joke and was dismissed from the jury. Did you have any observations you wanted to share about the way that that went down? I think it was properly resolved, but it is a remarkable incident that a juror in a case like the Rittenhouse case would be so unselfconscious, unabashed in making a joke like that to an institutional actor, whoever was escorting him, a court officer or a sheriff or what have you. It's like a little stunning. I don't know what it reveals. I think it reveals something about the culture in which this case is being tried. Yeah, I was impressed that the defense didn't try to, you know, keep the guy on once it became clear that he was so embarrassed by the joke that not even he wanted to repeat it. And they basically seemed to decide, well, if he won't even defend it, why should we? And it was dismatched. It it has to be a client-centered decision. I think the defense probably thought the writing is on the wall. The judge pretty much conveyed what he was going to do that this was a juror who now ought to be removed for cause. And so, you know, the question is, is this a battle that is worth fighting? I believe they probably contemplated it for a moment and just decided they didn't need that juror. I think that they're feeling pretty good so far about how their case is coming off. In the final moments of Detective Martin Howard's testimony, there was a lot of attention paid to Gage Grosskreutz and the treatment of him by the police and the prosecution. And specifically, you had Prosecutor Binger trying to elicit the testimony that indicated that there was nothing particularly preferential about the way that Gage Grosskreutz was treated, given the fact that he was shot in the arm by the defendant. 
On the other hand, you had what I perceived to be Mark Richards asking the detective to distinguish between what he decided and what the prosecution urged him to decide. And towards the end of his recross, he seemed to assert and try to get the detective to admit that the prosecution actually coached him not only to invoke Marcy's law, but to take responsibility for it. What did you make of all that? Well, first of all, the detective denied that he had been coached, that he'd been you know, talked to or guided by the prosecution from one day to the next. I think the Marcy's Law thing was such a red herring that way too much time was spent on it by either side. I don't think it's the kind of thing that a jury really cares about. The one thing I found surprising was that the defense was allowed a recross at all. There's really no such thing as a recross. There's direct cross-examination, and then redirect to respond to issues that were raised on cross that weren't already raised on direct. It's unusual, in my experience, for a judge to allow another cross. Interesting, because I've seen a fair amount of that in you know the limited experience I've had on these trials that we've covered. I've seen judges afford defense counsel the opportunity to ask follow-up questions after a redirect. So both in my experience and as a matter of conventional wisdom and practice, as reflected in most trial advocacy treatises, there's direct, cross, and redirect. There isn't such a thing as recross. There are some instances in which a judge will say, well, I allowed the prosecution in their redirect to include some things that the defense didn't have a chance to question on. And with an eye toward Sixth Amendment confrontation clause concerns, they may allow a few questions by the defense. But generally speaking, it's not supposed to go back and forth like that. Interesting. One other thing that I sensed from the final moments of Detective Howard's testimony was that Binger, when he was asking him again whether Joseph Rosenbaum was armed, Howard, in his answers, sort of went out of his way to say, not at that moment. Like, you know, implicitly hearkening back to when Rosenbaum was perceived with a chain. And I also sense that Mark Richards, the defense attorney, may have thought that there was daylight that he could exploit between Howard and the prosecution and Howard's sympathy for Rittenhouse. And I think that's why he pursued that kind of aggressive line of questioning at the end, because he sensed that maybe Howard wanted to throw Binger under the bus. That that was just a sense I had. I think that sense has some basis and grounding, because in response to one question by Mr. Binger about, you know, was not armed with anything. He said, no, he had thrown his bag down, but the bag was not a weapon. It it just was sort of interesting, the language that the detective seemed to embrace. I mean, Binger did a decent job of cleaning it up. You know, at no time did Mr. Rosenbaum have a weapon. At no time did he have a chain, that suggestion that he ever had a chain. You know, to your knowledge, according to your investigation, that wasn't the case. But I think the damage had been done. And I think what's so interesting to me is all of the prosecution witnesses so far don't feel like prosecution witnesses. Detective Howard, his sympathy for Rittenhouse is kind of all over his testimony. That's a good transition into a conversation about Richie McGinnis's testimony. 
Again, I was a bit perplexed by the structure and nature of Binger's questioning of McGinnis. But before I get into that, I wondered what, generally speaking, you made of the three episodes that we did about McGinnis's testimony this week. You know, if I were to title my comments, it would be, can't this prosecutor find a single witness who tells it the way he'd like him to? He just keeps calling witness after witness who feels more like a defense witness than a prosecution witness. And McGinnis was no exception. And his testimony reached a climax when he fought with Binger over his comments on Fox television versus his testimony at trial. That's the takeaway for me is so far the prosecution really hasn't called a single witness who has articulated a coherent theory of prosecution. I agree with you. I think part of the issue there is that Binger knew what the guy was going to say. I mean, the difference between falling forward and lunging so that he could stop himself was essentially a distinction without a difference. And I thought Binger's questioning called attention to the difference rather than building a narrative where Kyle Rittenhouse was edgy, was nervous, was young, inexperienced, and hopped up on nicotine, as you've indicated. And instead of diving into that narrative, he chose to pick fights and dwell on matters that were ultimately exculpatory of Rittenhouse or supported the self-defense narrative. What do you think of that? I think the witness got the better of Mr. Binger in the exchange about language and what words to use to describe the motion by Mr. Rosenbaum. But I have a bunch of thoughts. And in addition to the things you suggested Mr. Binger might focus on, I think he could have and should have focused also on Rittenhouse's star seeking, his celebrity ambition. Why was he the only guy who was just happy as could be to talk to McGinnis? went out of his way. And also the way he described what his comrades, his armed comrades were doing were all about him. You know, they were protecting him. They were keeping a lookout for him. He's rendering medical aid. He sounded grandiose and full of himself and the kind of person who is more likely to be a reckless, loose cannon, which would be a decent prosecution theory. And is an affirmative point as opposed to, you know, I've said this before, there's destructive cross-examination, and there's cross-examination that seeks to make some affirmative points. Here's what happened. He could have. His direct examination should have proceeded with all of that stuff, all the positive, easy to get from McGinnis that he knew he would say, because of course he had plenty of indication about what this witness would say. And I think he had a hint. He had to have a hint that there was going to be a disagreement about lunge versus fall. And if he didn't know that in advance, any good trial lawyer ought to be able to react when that happens. Here's a guy who appeared, you know, willingly, happily on Tucker Carlson's show. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. In the next part of our conversation, Abby and I drill down on Prosecutor Binger's persistent efforts to get Richie McGinnis to acknowledge that he used the word falling to describe what Joseph Rosenbaum was doing when Kyle Rittenhouse shot him. Let me read that section of the Tucker Carlson interview for you, and then we can talk about it a little bit more specifically. Mm -hmm. I was actually directly behind Rosenbaum, McGinnis says. So I took one or two steps to my right as Rosenbaum was lunging for the barrel of the rifle. He was that close to him. And Rittenhouse actually took the barrel of the rifle and just dodged around. And at that point, as Rosenbaum was falling forward, he fired quickly, four shots into Rosenbaum. And at that point, I was only about, and that's where the interview is cut off during the testimony. And so what I'm saying is, if Binger had focused on the fact that Rittenhouse easily kind of dodged the barrel of the rifle around Rosenbaum, and Rather than trying to hit Rosenbaum with the barrel of the rifle or doing something less lethal with the weapon, instead he fired four shots into Rosenbaum. Not one, not two, four shots. Mm -hmm. If he had focused on that rather than on whether McGinnis had described him as falling or not falling, I mean, that would have been much more effective by Binger. I agree. I couldn't agree more. Now that I'm aware of of the backdrop and of um, McGinnis's use of a bunch of different language to describe what was going on. No good would come of Binger inquiring at all into that. Keep it to the number of shots. Keep it to the way the gun was fastened upon Rittenhouse and that nobody was taking it off him. Focus on Rittenhouse acting like a big shot and wanting to be interviewed. Focus on him smoking cigarettes in this manic fashion. Get the stuff you know you can get. Don't touch the stuff that's going to hurt you. Binger had a very good sense of what McGinnis was going to say if he had really studied the interview with Tucker Carlson, that um, McGinnis was going to alternately use falling and lunging. And so he had kind of a backup position. If that's the case, I think you make a strategic decision as a prosecutor to leave that alone and not emphasize it. Because if he has a pretty good clue that McGinnis is going to use this more aggressive language and suggest that Joseph Rosenbaum was a threat. He was lunging at Rittenhouse. He was lunging in order to grab a weapon. The prosecutor doesn't want that in his direct examination as part of his story. But once it became, once he did that and it became a battle and Binger used a kind of conventional way of, of cleaning up witnesses who embellish at trial and essentially kind of shade their testimony or change it. You know, the classic witness examination question is something to the effect of memory. You know, the facts don't change over time. Your memory is best. Your memory is sharpest and most accurate, closer to the incident than it would be now, some months later at trial. He, He couldn't even get McGinnis to agree to that. McGinnis says, oh my, it's crystal clear. I'll never forget that moment. He had to know he was going to have a witness who would try to squirm away. But if that's the case, 
And you can't get him to admit that his account of the incident would have been most reliable and most accurate, closer to the incident itself. Then you try something else if you really like that language of falling. And the thing that he never focuses on is that the gun is attached to Rittenhouse. So it is not easily right. removed Obtain. from Rittenhouse's body or hand. The, 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 the second thing is that he never asked McGinnis, did you ever see Kyle Rittenhouse try to use that gun in a less than lethal manner? If he succeeded mm -hmm. in evading Rosenbaum, did you ever see him try to hit Rosenbaum with the gun to disable Rosenbaum without killing him? Did you ever see him do anything that was less than lethal to a guy that was clearly unarmed, thereby asserting that even if Kyle Rittenhouse was acting in self-defense, mm -hmm. he used force above and beyond what was necessary to defuse the situation? Yeah, that would have been a much more effective tack. I mean, if, if Binger had stuck to the fidgety, hyped up, agitated Rittenhouse... The gun and how it was attached used this witness who sounded kind of knowledgeable about firearms. He'd seen them before, you know, use him to say Rittenhouse had this strap, this special strap that kept the gun secure or secured to his person or securely on his person. Describe that and, you know, describe his eagerness to talk to the press. I would have also pointed out McGinnis's bias, though. I would have pointed out what kind of journalist he is, who he works for, who owns the company he works for, just to kind of make plain what side he was on. And I, I think a more skilled witness examiner could have come away not looking so wounded from that exchange about lunging and falling. Because if he's allowed to ask leading questions, and I think at a certain point he could have asked that that witness be declared a hostile witness, so that the prosecutor could have used cross-examination style leading questions instead of direct examination. If words were important to Binger, and I, I think you've persuaded me that that maybe the you know lunging, falling in this context, especially if the witness had used the words interchangeably before, was a battle that Binger shouldn't have even taken on. But he could have come away better if he had kind of you know drafted a, an examination that went something like this: "You're a journalist." That's the purpose of you being in Kenosha, Wisconsin on that evening. Uh, you're a words guy. That's what journalism is about. The currency is words. Words are important. You choose them with care. And then point out that the word he used soon after the incident with Tucker Carlson was fall. Now, he was a smart enough witness that he was going to fight back. He was going to push back on that. So even if you carefully crafted that, I'm, I'm not sure that that was necessary. I think you're right that he should have been more surgical in his direct examination and been very clear about the points he needed. Get in and get out. Because, you know, it's like the, it's the credo of doctors, witness examination. First, do no harm. First, do no harm to your own case. And harm yeah. was done. There, there really didn't need to be much of a cross-examination of this witness, in my opinion. Yeah. Let's go back to the part of Binger's questioning where he was talking about the man with the yellow pants and the other men that were with him, one of whom was mm -hmm. carrying rocks and behaved in a threatening manner towards McGinnis. What did you make of that exchange? 
I don't know how to put it any other way, but it felt to me like a kind of racist dog whistle. You know, he made plain that the guys were African-American. He felt threatened by them. That was good for the defense narrative that Rittenhouse was out there protecting people and protecting property from people who were threatening. And, you know, the the kind of race-based nature of the protests are the elephant in the room. But again, I think it worked for the defense because these guys did admit that they were jumping on cars. You know, they... Uh-huh. Yes, it worked for the defense. It was a dog whistle, but it worked beautifully for the defense. That, in fact, you know, there were guys out there who were armed and angry. So there was a need for, you know, quote unquote, good citizens like Kyle Rittenhouse and his pals to be out there protecting property and providing medical assistance. And again, I didn't really understand where Banger was heading with the questioning. I mean, did you do you have a sense of what he was trying to get out of that no. Part of the testimony? No, that felt like a mistake. That felt like something the defense would elicit on cross-examination. I, I didn't understand it at all. Can, do you have a thought as to what possible purpose that could have had consistent with the government's case? Unless, and here's the problem with the government's theory, with the prosecution's theory. Could he have been trying to point out that there were you know, other people who were armed with various things, but they didn't kill, and yet Rittenhouse did? If so, it's way too attenuated. I mean, I think it may be a little bit simpler than that, which is that the guy with the yellow pants is the one guy remarking that Kyle Rittenhouse was waving a gun around earlier, and now he's offering medical attention to people. Ah, okay. And I think that's what Binger was getting at. I also think that he may have been trying to elicit a sense of McGinnis's own racial profiling in pointing out that these men were African-American and maybe that's why McGinnis was scared. But I think McGinnis sounded legitimate in his fear that one guy was carrying rocks and was acting aggressively toward him. I bought that. And Mm -hmm. I also bought it when he said he diffused the situation with a white claw and the other guys started making fun of the guy with the rocks because McGinnis was legitimately scared, you know? Yep. I agree. McGinnis seemed perfectly credible in that account. And you're probably right that that's what Binger wanted was an account of Rittenhouse, you know, kind of having his cake and eating it too, waving around a gun in a, in a kind of hyped up macho fashion. And then, you know, suddenly being Florence Nightingale and that those two things don't come together. And they're consistent with, you know, a kind of grandiose guy who's looking for trouble, you know, It was interesting that a lot of that wasn't objected to also by the defense. There was a whole lot of focus on on McGinnis's perception of what was going on. And it was curious to me because, of course, those statements by the guy in the yellow pants and the other guy, that's all hearsay. And it seems to me it goes to the truth of the matter asserted because really McGinnis's perception is not relevant. Right. Well, again, I think that the defense probably sensed that Binger was doing their work for them in his questioning of McGinnis. Yes. Honestly, they must have felt so relaxed during his testimony. They must have just leaned back and enjoyed the direct because Binger was scoring a lot of points for the defense. I mean, right. That's their theory. Their theory is that Rosenbaum was really threatening, that Rittenhouse didn't know what he was going to do. He was lunging and aggressive. And 
everything was kind of instantaneous. That's that's really helpful for a self-defense theory. And yep. threatening, you know, and racist though it is, I, you know, I can well imagine the defense making hay out of McGinnis's fear of the people who are out there on the street, because then McGinnis could be a kind of journalist surrogate for Rittenhouse, corroborating that there was something to be afraid of. Yep. Again, it brings me back to something I said last time, which is that it may well be that Binger had a weak case at heart, that there was ample evidence that Kyle Rittenhouse was underage to have that gun. Once it's in his possession, he was legitimate in using it to protect himself from an assault by Joseph Rosenbaum. That said, Binger doesn't appear to have made an effort to put together a theory that would pass the smell test of a reasonable person trying to put themselves in the shoes of Kyle Rittenhouse and make a decision that he was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt of killing with reckless disregard for the law. You know, I don't know. I got to tell you, Carrie, every time I talk about this case to friends, I was at a dinner party last night and I was talking about how fascinating it is to listen to the testimony since really tip of the iceberg is what we got from national media reports. Everybody is stunned that he was acquitted. Every ordinary person who you know knows a little bit about the case can't believe that this kid armed with an AR-15 you know, mows down three people and is acquitted. I can't believe that Binger didn't think he had a case. I just don't think he tried it well. I think this case could have easily been tried to a conviction. We're talking about an unarmed person. And Rittenhouse has a baby face, according to McGinnis. That was another bad moment, by the way, was that he sort of got in that this is a, you know, kind of a a baby that's consistent with this kind of innocent boy being afraid. But he's not a little thing. He's kind of a big boy. And, you know, an unarmed guy with a plastic bag at most, is you just don't bring a gun to a knife fight. I mean, why isn't that a prosecution A a gun to a bag fight. Yes, even better. A gun to a bag fight. You know, an armed, a guy, and not just armed. It's not like he's armed with a handgun. He's armed with a killing machine. That's attached to his body. So, you know, fear of it being taken away is, it's not so easy to take that gun away from him. No, it's absurd. And, and he has deliberately fastened the gun to his person. They made a special trip to buy equipment to keep that gun fastened to his person. And, you know, I'm sorry, but you have to do something less than use deadly force in a fist fight, which is really the correct characterization of what Rosenbaum was doing at worst. Right. All right, Abby. Well, another week down. Look forward to picking this up again next week as we move into the cross-examination of Richie McGinnis. Thanks again, as always, for joining us. Okay, thanks so much for having me. Can't wait for the cross-examination. That brings to a close this weekly recap of Jury Duty, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Join us next week as we conclude our look at the direct examination of Richie McGinnis and move on to the cross-examination of the witness by defense attorney Mark Richards. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our guest on this episode was professor of law at Georgetown University, Abby Smith. It was co-produced by Chris Taracone and Aaron Karenik. Our consulting producer is Brittany Bookbinder. It was edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Kyle Rittenhouse.